Well, I'm not going to have to warm you up this morning with a, a great story to capture your attention because this morning we're talking about sex. Got your attention? All right, thought so. Well, we're, uh, we're, we're talking about sex this morning and we're allowed to talk about it in church because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and all scripture is profitable. It's profitable. And so we're in the middle of this two-month journey through the Song of Solomon. And I believe that the chapter that we look at today is also profitable. For married people, it's profitable. For unmarried people, it's profitable. So turn with me to to Song of Solomon chapter 4. And in a bit there, we'll get it up on the screen. We're not going to land there right out of the gate, but we'll get there eventually. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, we've got Bibles around the room. I'd love for you to grab one of those and keep it. Bring it home. Uh, we'd love for you to break that in. Uh, this, this book that we're looking at, the Song of Solomon, uh, in a very poetic manner, follows King Solomon and this peasant woman through various seasons of their relationship, uh, from the initial attraction to spending time together to getting really serious all the way to the wedding as we saw last week. And, and clearly this is written by man because we've got six verses on the wedding and we've got 17 verses on the wedding night. Yes, it was a great event. I said yes, she said yes. And then we got in the chariot and let me tell you, wow. And so, no, seriously, there, there's something to be said here because I think most married couples will spend more time over the course of their lifetime in those months leading up to the wedding planning for a four-hour event than they will addressing this lifelong element of their marriage. Your sexual uh, intimacy needs attention. And so that's what we're going to do, is we're going to give it some attention uh, this morning. We're, we're going to talk openly about it, and we talk openly about it in these gatherings. And then one of the things that we've done to help you address this stuff is we've created a text line. And so we're going to put a number up on the screen for you, and your questions are going to be addressed uh, if you will send some questions in through uh, upcoming sermons that we have in this series, or if not in the sermons, at the very end of this series, we're going to devote a whole Sunday to a panel discussion, and uh, myself, my wife, and David Butler and his wife Gail are going to walk through some of these questions. And so the number for that is 617-435-7912, 617-435-7912, and you send in those questions, and they will come in anonymously, send in anything and everything goes, and we want to address those just as a way of helping you to pay attention uh, to some very important things with regards to relationships. And so make note of that. And then we also want to encourage married couples to talk this stuff out. I say married couples to talk this stuff out. See, we're really comfortable as married people to talk about budget and home buying and syncing our our schedules and, and job transfers and things of that nature. But very few couples will get really open and honest to actually speak together about sexual intimacy. And so what happens is a lot of people lie in bed with fear and frustration and comparison and pride and guilt and confusion. Just talk. It's important to, to talk. What, what, what are you feeling? What, what fears do you have? What works for you? What's enjoyable for you? What's not enjoyable for you? What, what are you thinking? And, and actually talk about this stuff. It's so important. So important. We spend more time talking about a four-hour event than we do this stuff that lasts a lifetime. And so today we're talking about it. We're, we're talking about it. So you good with that? Well, you're already here. So if you walk out... Um, Well, people are going to be staring at you. So here we go. Uh, We're going to talk about it. Uh, Because God puts it in the Bible. God wants us to to work through this stuff. God has given us an 
unbelievably powerful gift in sexual intimacy. And so what I'd like to do is take just the first opening moments together just to look at the, the purposes of sex. And so let me just quickly give you four, and, 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 and you might want to write these down, but the first and most obvious is procreation, right? That, that's obvious, right? Babies. Genesis chapter 1, 28 tells us to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. The babies are a gift, and, and, and the babies are an obvious purpose of sex. But here's the thing. As, as obvious as that is, this aspect of sex is not one time mentioned in the Song of Solomon. And so that's, that's to be noted, right? So there are obviously other purposes. Yes, procreation, but God could have made sex as ungratifying as a handshake. Just a, a, a step in the process to get babies. But he says it's not just about babies. It's about other things. And so the next one is pleasure. Sex is for, for pleasures. Proverbs chapter 5.19 says this. It says, let her breasts fill you at all time with delight. Now, looking ahead to today's text, if you did a little sneak peek and went ahead and read, uh, you're going to have to get real comfortable with me saying that word, by the way. And so he says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. God is saying, I want pleasure for you. I do. And I want it to fill you. I want it to be fulfilling for you. Fill you at all times with delight. That's pleasure. It goes on and it says, be intoxicated. Be intoxicated with her love. This, this, this uh, song here in, in, in the very end here in chapter 5 verse 1 is going to end again with this, this picture of intoxication. Be overwhelmed by it. Just love this. It's, it's great. The Hebrew word there is, it really means to, to be carried away. And so after after a long day of hurting children or a tough day at the office or in the workforce somewhere, you can escape it all. You can be carried away from it all. See, pleasures in the midst of the pains of life. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, uh, kind of shows this, this narrative of King David and Bathsheba, and they lose their first child. And in order to comfort her, he makes love with her. And so there's pleasure in the midst of pain. So pleasure. Pleasure is important, obviously. The next purpose is profession. Let me, let me clarify this one here. Sex professes to your spouse that we are one. We are one. Genesis chapter 2, 24, the man, man and woman are married, and then it says the two shall become one flesh. And so every time you make love with your spouse, you are reasserting we're one. You're reasserting your oneness. You're saying, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not going anywhere. I am totally, fully yours. And so there's this overwhelming sense of of oneness that comes with intimacy. Let me give you one more, one more purpose, and that is protection. Sex is for protection. Uh, Sexual intimacy is a powerful way to protect, to safeguard your marriage. First Corinthians chapter 7 speaks to married couples and it says that you are to have this frequent intimacy with your spouse so that, here's the quote, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so one of the, the best ways to affair-proof your marriage is frequent physical intimacy. Now hear me, i got to be careful here because a lack of sex, for whatever reason, doesn't give anyone an excuse to be unfaithful Ever. 
But God has designed us as humans to long for each other, especially when you've ignited that passion with another person. He's, he's created us to, to long for that again and again and again, and, and it's there to keep us close. And so sex, yes, is the, the culmination of intimacy, but it's also catalytic for greater intimacy. And so the more you do it, the more frequently you do, it keeps you Close And so a lack of physical intimacy leads to drift. And so, listen, you have to prioritize it. You have to prioritize it. It's protection. Did you get all of those? Good. Procreation, pleasure, profession, protection. Physical intimacy is incredibly important. And it is a great gift of God that demands our attention. So here we go. You ready? 17 verses of attention. 17 verses of naked and not ashamed. Genesis 2.25. This is appropriate sex. This is ideal sex. This is no shame sex. This is how God has designed it. Song of Solomon chapter 4 verse 1. Let's read. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behind your veil. And so Kevin walked us through the wedding last week. And, and, and so they leave the wedding ceremony. They must have hopped in that chariot that he had built for her. And they head to the palace, the hotel, the bed and breakfast, the whatever. And they're finally alone. They're away from gawking family and goofy groomsmen and dolled up bridesmaid. And they're in the room and they're wearing whatever they're wearing. I don't know. And it's, it's time. And, and she has warned us twice now. And when there's repetition in the bible that says hey watch this twice now she has warned us do not awaken or stir up love like this until it's time well it's time and where does he go it's time and where does he go anywhere and where does he go he goes to you he says behold you you are beautiful and that line again that he's already used once he says your eyes are doves which remember doves are a picture of peace and so he's not necessarily really complimenting her eyes he's speaking to how he feels when he's with her he's speaking to her as a person he's saying when i'm with you peace they're about to make love for the very first time and and song of solomon says it this way He, he he says listen it's you as a person I'm after. I'm not after your body. I'm after you. And here's how he starts. He starts by not starting too fast. Because here's the deal, man. This is so, so important. Before you touch her body, first you must touch her heart. So important. There's so much more to it for her than just the act itself. Fast forward, you're married sometime now. Have you engaged her throughout the day? Have you just turned off the television and now decided to turn her on? It doesn't work like that, right? It just, it just doesn't work like that, right? Generally speaking, men are TVs and women are kind of like computers, right? They have to boot up real slow, right? And, and, and generally speaking, that's how it is. So here's the thing now. Now, now does, does he use this this one great line and say, okay, now I got it. Now I'm going to get to it. Does one great line and then go there? No. Why? Because that would be manipulation. Let me say something nice to get from you what I want. No, he keeps going on with compliments. Why? Because he's sincere. 
Look at the second half of verse 1. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Fellas, remember, principles, not methods. The goat line is not going to work for you, right? It's not going to end for you the same way it ends for Solomon if you pull out the goat line, right? For her in that day, it was a great compliment. These goats would come down the slopes and, and the sun would reflect off of their, their, their waxy hair there. And it, it was great. But you're going to have to get original, all right? So work on that. Now, now watch this man's effort. This is, he just doesn't let up. He just keeps pulling out the poetry. Why? Because he's not being manipulative. Let me give her one thing to get what I want. He keeps going. He's sincere. And check out this beautiful line. Verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, that's a female sheep, that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. He just said, girl, you got all your teeth. And I like that. I'm telling you, those eHarmony profile pictures up in Maine, man, it's a different story up there. But I'm telling you what, he says, you got all your teeth. And I like that. He goes on, he says, shorn ewes, not one of them has lost it's young. So you got them all. Not one. I mean, they're all, they're all there. They're all there. That's, that's good. He goes on, verse 3. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. So apparently, he's commenting on rosy cheeks. Verse 4. Your neck is like the tower of David, built in rows of stone. Maybe he's referring to a necklace there. On it hangs a thousand shields. All of them shields of warriors. So perhaps that's some serious earrings or something. And now we're going to pause here for just a minute before the clothes start coming off. Because this is actually really, really huge, right? This couple, they've honored the Lord and they've, I believe they've saved themselves for each other. And things go wild later on. We've talked about that at the very beginning of this series. But they've exercised to this point serious restraint prior to to marriage and and in a christian wedding everybody knows right if it's a christian wedding and and we're talking about the pastor's talking about how this points to the mystery of christ and and his church it's a wonderful thing and so everybody knows when you leave the the reception they know what's going to happen right there's all this build up and there's all this pressure and all this this excitement and, and and nervousness and there's the pressure of, I know what the media says, and, 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 and so perhaps she's wondering, what is he thinking? What is he going to think about me? And in a culture that we live in where clothes are generally form-fitting, in that culture, not at all. So he doesn't have a clue, right? And she knows that he doesn't have a clue what's going on, and, and she's got these clothes draping over She's nervous. But, but, but notice what Solomon doesn't do. He doesn't say, you're beautiful, one compliment, and then just tackle her, does he? One, one thing that we need to be clear about this evening for these two is that there is no rush at all. He says, you, you are beautiful. He says, I love everything about you. Your, your soul is, is beautiful. And then he goes on and lets her know how physically attracted he is. He says, the way your hair falls on your body, your, your lips smile, your face, the jewelry, you're just beautiful. Do you see what he's, he's doing here? She's nervous. What is, what is he going to think? Is, he has no idea. And he's just assuring her. We already know from chapter 1 of Song of Solomon that she is very self-conscious about her, her body. 
And he slowly, feature by feature by feature by feature, assuring her. Because here's the reality. An insecure woman makes a poor lover. And fellas, I'm going to put that on you. God wants you to make her feel secure and safe. I've spent countless hours counseling couples. And a lot of boneheads will come into my office complaining. She never wants to have sex with me. She never initiates anything. When it's very clear many times that he has done very little to make her feel loved, to make her feel emotionally secure, protected, adored. And he's wondering why she doesn't initiate anything or want anything with me. Why she, why, why she struggles to muster up desire for me in this way. But here what we have is a man who is assuring his bride, I treasure you. I adore you. You are beautiful in every way. Every way. This is not a man who's lost control of himself. It's not. He's aware not simply of his own desires, but he's aware of her needs. You got that? That is so important. So important. Just like you would tell a little toddler, I'm going to say to you men, Use your words. Use your words. You don't have to be physical. Just use your words. Speak. Work on being romantic. Right? Okay, so now, now she's feeling secure and they can move into deeper places in their, their intimacy. And so look at, look at verse 5. He says, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. That's Bible, I promise. I didn't insert that. That's Bible. Okay, so we've moved beyond the words, and the dress now is at least halfway off here. And so what do we do with this metaphor? I mean, I don't, wow. Um, what do we do with this? Let me try to help. Fawns are baby deer, right? Is that true? Okay. So this summer, I was on vacation in Virginia, and praise the Lord for giving me an illustration so I don't have to try to, like, awkwardly <laughs> praise the Lord. And so I was on vacation in Virginia, and we're driving through a golf course at the resort that we, we stayed at. And would you know it, up ahead, right alongside of the road, along the, the pond there, are two baby deer. Now, a, a, as we approached them, can, can I tell you what we did? We slowed down, we rolled down the windows, and we looked at them. You got it? I mean, that, that, that was it. We, we approached carefully, and then we, we looked at them. And things are moving forward in, in their chamber here. But Solomon still approaches slowly. He still remains gentle. He still remains tender. He, he, he's still ensuring that she feels safe. He's not in a hurry. You with me? Please don't make me go any further right there. Okay, good. You're with me. All right. Here's another reason why pornography is so stinking damaging. It's because you look at photos of, of people without knowing their soul, and then you have a spouse, and you think that you can do to them whatever you want to do. Like, they're, they're a person without a soul. And you approach however you want to approach without respect and care for how they're going to receive things. You see this? There's tenderness here. There's a slow approaching here. Don't get me wrong, though. There's, there's also passion. Read on, verse 6. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. So what's he saying? He's saying, I want to be here till morning, right? He's saying, when the shadows are, are, are gone, 
I want to explore the mountains and the hills. He's speaking of body parts here. And he's saying, I want to explore her until the morning. So yes, there's tenderness and care and sensitivity, but there's, there's also passion. Bo- both are there. And the point is that we have to balance both of them. There has to be a, a, a balance. Verse 7, he, he says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So passion, back to assuring her again. Do you, do you see the balance? Do you see that? He's enjoying her body, but, but not to the neglect of being aware of how she's feeling. Not to the neglect of being aware of her needs. He continues to be aware of her soul. And as I've told you, all along, by God calling us to save this, this great gift until marriage, he's not trying to be a killjoy. He's setting you up for something far better, far greater. That it's not just two bodies enjoying physical passions. Christian intimacy is, is physical passion, mental passion, emotional passion, soul passion, even spiritual passion, mind, body, soul, spirit. In the security of a covenant, they're not going to leave me. They're not going to bail on me. And so with unhibited passion, we can go after this because there's covenant relationship. God's way is the best way. And so he's enjoying her, making sure that she's enjoying this too. Because marriage is about selfless, sacrificial love under the example of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, I read this often at weddings, says this in verses 5 through 8. Just listen carefully. It says, Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Have that mind. It says, have that mind which is yours in Jesus. This applies everywhere in your life. It doesn't stop at the bedroom door to be selfless and to be aware of others like Christ. And when you both do that, exaltation. That means it leads to the best intimacy possible. It's a balance of enjoyment and selflessness. And I could argue that that really sums up the Christian faith, doesn't it? A balance of enjoyment and selflessness, a balance of enjoying God and just being overwhelmed by God and then going and serving people the way God has served you. That's the Christian faith, right? See how the gospel applies in every aspect of your life? Nothing in your life goes untouched by the message of Jesus. So he goes on, verse 8. He says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinar and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. So what's he doing? He's describing for her this this great journey that we're about to go on with with various mountain peaks. Saying tonight we're going to go on this journey of passion. From one peak of passion to the next peak of passion to the next peak of passion. And he's inviting her into that. He's saying, come, come join me. So there's that, that selflessness. It's not just, I'm going to have some passion. He said, I want you to come and join me. I want you to have this. I want to lead you there as well. I want to make sure that you're on this journey as well. Now read on, verses 9 through 11. Just keep reading. It says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. 
with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Okay, something huge to point out here. Clearly enjoying themselves. Something huge to point out here is the phrase, my sister, my bride. And again, whenever something is repeated in Scripture, we need to pay attention. And and he says it twice. He says, you are my sister first. And then you're my bride. In verse 11, talks about kissing. And not French kissing, because France wasn't even a place yet. And so I don't know if this is Shulamite kissing or what, but they're kissing, that's for sure. And he's certainly not kissing her like he would kiss a sister. But first, she's his sister. He says, you're my my sister. Speaking to, you're my sister in, in, in faith. Listen, to enjoy intimacy in the way that we're, we're talking about, it is assumed that you're both sharing the same faith. Now, if you're in a relationship already, and what I mean by that is you're committed to, to marriage, this is not an out, and 1 Corinthians will talk about that as well. You stay in there, but, but 2 Corinthians chapter 6.14 will say this. It will say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You've got to marry and therefore only date people who are believers, if you are a believer. Save yourself from tremendous heartache, tremendous pain that comes in being married to someone who doesn't share your faith. Doesn't it just make common sense? You're supposed to be all about this. Your whole life is centered around Christ, and they're not? I mean, it's just constant tension. Do you know what a yoke is when it says be yoked together? Don't be unequally yoked. A yoke is the, the wooden frame that you would see hanging on the sides of barns today just as decoration, but it was actually used to, to, to yoke or to link two animals together for the purpose of doing work. Two oxen together, two, two animals together for the purpose of doing work. And if you're unequally yoked, here's what happens. You go nowhere because one stride is bigger than the other and you just go in circles, really. And that's how it's going to feel in your marriage if you're in this relationship where you're about Jesus and they're not and you can't really be on his mission together. There's struggle, there's tension, and it even becomes painful. Some of you perhaps have have experienced that. He says, do not be unequally yoked. Make sure that you are, in fact, brother and sister in faith before you are bride and groom. Also, guys, I'll tell you this. uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2 instructs us to treat Young women like sisters. My sister, my, my bride. And if you take that seriously, I think that would greatly affect the way you treat and the way you approach and touch young women until that sister becomes your, your bride. She says, you're my sister, you're my bride. And because you're my sister and my bride, not just my bride, We can enjoy this intimacy thing on whole other levels. Read on. Verse 12. This is a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all its choices fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calmus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. As you read the book of Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, where he'll address some of the mistakes that he'll make later on in his life that really affect this relationship. But as you, as you read that book, you see that he was a serious botanist. I mean, just, just really had a green 
thumb. And, and even today on the east side of Jerusalem, there are huge craters that are referred to as the pools of Solomon, where he would store up water so that he could, could, could water whole forests that he had had planted. And, and, and so this isn't your, you know, your four foot by four foot urban garden that you want a lottery to plant basil and tomatoes. I mean, this is, this is, this is crazy. Think Arboretum, think Boston Public Garden, think Emerald Necklace, but looking just beautiful. And so Solomon did that. He set that stuff up and he is just, was incredible with that. And he, and he knew his stuff. And so what's happening here with, with these few verses is he's describing some of the rarest, most expensive, most sought after fruits and spices and flowers known in that, that day. And what would happen is that those different kinds of fruits and spices and flowers demanded different variables of weather and soils and shade. And, 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 and they couldn't all be grown right there in the same location. So here's what he's saying about her when he describes all these things in one location. He, he's saying, you are to me the unattainable garden. My goodness, the poetry just doesn't stop. This is incredible. You, you are the lost garden that has been unlocked for me. You, you are a locked garden. And now we have special access to each other. And I'm yours and you are mine. No one has ever known you like this. No one has ever known me like this. I mean, this is rare. This is amazing. What we have is beautiful. What we have is, is one of a kind. And can I, just, can I just implore all of us to wait for this? If you're, if you're not married, wait for this. If you haven't waited for this, beginning now, wait for this. Make some changes in your relationships. This is a great, great gift of God. It's rare. It's amazing. It's something that only you two can, can share. A few more very important verses. Verse 16. It says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. I think that means what we think it means. And then she responds, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choices fruit. One thing I want to point out here is that the balance continues all the way through this thing, doesn't it? He says, awake north wind, and come south wind. The, the north wind in Jewish symbolism uh, was a picture of strength. The south wind kind of counterbalanced that was a picture of, of gentleness. And so they're about to fully engage at this point in physical intimacy. And yet there's still this awareness of gentleness and passion. Awareness and pleasure. And he calls her awake while still balancing these two. And he's waiting for her her invitation to, to fully consummate the marriage. He's not pushing himself upon her. And so she responds, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choices fruit. Here's what we have. We have God's perfect design, this, this idealistic picture of marriage between a husband and a wife. And listen, I'm not oblivious that it's not this perfect and clean and nice and neat and packaged beautifully all the time. Trust me, trust me, trust me. But what we have is the Bible saying, this is what we pursue. This is what we're after. These are principles that we, we believe, God believes that, that you can apply. And, and we have this perfect design. And what we see here is that it, it's mutual. He desires her. 
clearly. And now she desires him. It's, it's not a, a single side pursuit. It's a mutual pursuit of each other. And, and, and I've spoken to the men a ton here this morning. So let me just take a moment to, to speak to the women. And this is dangerous, but I'm going to do it. Um, there, there are many occasions, ladies, where, where he's doing things rightly and he's sincerely seeking to pursue you well and selflessly and, and, and gently and, and to serve you and not just to please him, himself. And yet some things can still be off in this department. Still happens all, all the time. And, and younger people, this might be a, a shock to you, but life gets complicated. Babies come, kind of make things complicated. Or babies don't come, and that makes things complicated. Or you lose a baby, and that makes things complicated. Or you lose several babies, and that really makes things complicated. Stresses come. In life, physical body changes come in, in life, and it's not always picture perfect. And that's why, again, the gospel is our framework for everything, including sex, so important. We serve, we seek to understand, we pray, we love, we fight through this, we work through it. As we read earlier in the book where there were the little foxes, we got other people to come help us to catch the little foxes, we get, we get some help. But here's what I'm getting at. Ladies, he desires you, no matter what, he desires you to desire him too. He says, come, O north wind, and awake. And then she says, yes, come into my garden. He desires you to invite it. He desires you to, to want it. And the, the joke is that as, as you grow older, women lose interest. And so in order to not be the jerk wife, what she'll do oftentimes is just give in to him and, 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 and just, okay, yeah, fine but not really want it herself. And, and listen, he doesn't just need sexual release. He needs a sexual experience with the woman he loves. He wants it to be reciprocated back to him. He wants that. He needs that. I was, I was pointed by my wife to a, a devotional that she was reading by a, a Christian author named Jen Hatmaker, and she describes it this way, and I thought it was really, really helpful. She, she says this, she says, girls are emotional creatures, and so they, they're really good at getting emotional support from various places, but men have emotional needs too. Go figure. But, but they don't draw the emotional support from multiple places. Men oftentimes stand alone at the workplace, as a provider, or just simply as a man with the expectation of being dependent and strong. For him, sex with his wife is the purest relief to that loneliness. In your arms, he is accepted, desired, loved. And when he sees that you want to be with him physically, you are serving him and helping him to succeed everywhere else. Sex to him is not just sex. There is no stronger way to communicate your love. He is more than just testosterone. When you say no, he feels rejected. You're simply saying, I'm tired. That's all you mean. But he's hearing, my wife doesn't want me. I just made myself vulnerable, but rejected. Let me give you some more. This is a lady named Sheila Gregoire, a teacher on women and their sexuality. And she says it this way. She says, the wife, she makes love because she feels love. Right? We talked about that. You have to cause her to feel and know that she's loved and and the assurance. She makes love because she feels love. He makes love 
to feel loved. See how men and women are uniquely wired. She goes on. In other words, when she doesn't feel love, she doesn't want to make love. When he feels distance, the, 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 the thing he wants most is to make love because that's how he fixes everything. You see that? So that puts us in a real predicament, doesn't it? I mean, that, what, okay, so what do we do? What do we do? Both men and women have to live under the example of Jesus. Well, Jesus was a married, yeah, but he gives us this great example to serve and to serve sacrificially. Servant lovers. Servant lovers. And one way that you may need to serve is by getting help. Sometimes sexual intimacy might be struggling because of not sin that was done to you by a spouse, but maybe sin that was done to you as we've talked about before. Wounds of your childhood, of abuse, of insecurity of your your past. It's time to get help. It's time to get help. For, For your own good and for their good and so that your marriage can flourish and so that you can... You can enjoy this gift that God has given you. And so she reciprocates and she invites him into her garden. And they both experience this fulfilling sexual intimacy as God intended. Now now listen to how Solomon responds. Chapter 5 verse 1. He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with honey. I drank my wine with milk. And so that's all past tense. This has happened. All these biblical images of of enjoyment. Myrrh, which is this aroma. Spice, which is flavor. Honey, which is sweetness. Milk, which is nourishment. It it was fulfilling in so many ways, right? It's not just an act. It's so many ways. The many purposes of sex as we open with. And, And listen, this is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for you. Not just this picture that culture and media makes it out to be. He wants it to be fulfilling in so many ways. Now listen to the last line of today's text from the others. And we talked about who the others are at the beginning of this series. They're basically the backup singers that chime in every now and again. And they say, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So many scholars will will point to the others uh, throughout this book as different people. And so at one point, obviously we talked about this, the others are her girlfriends And they're declaring a little bit of what they know about Solomon. Later in the song, towards the end, uh, the others are perhaps her brothers. Uh, But here, uh, many scholars will say this, and and I I lean here as well, that this is, the other here is the Lord. Because obviously friends and brothers are not in that room, hopefully. I I like this option. Because I think it, it represents the heart of God. Where God's saying, drink up. I have a great gift for you. Like wine, I want you to enjoy it and not abuse it so that it leads to worship. Like steak, I want you to eat it and love it and enjoy it, but not become a glutton. Let it lead you to worship. And here, I want you to enjoy this and I want it to lead you to worship. Every good and perfect gift, the scripture says, comes from who? From above. He says, I've given you this gift. Just drink up, friends. Enjoy it. This is, this is my gift to you. It pleases me to see you enjoying this gift as I design it. So I deeply believe that this is God's heart for you, that he's holding this beautiful gift before every single one of us. And he's saying, will you receive it? 
And will you receive it in the way that I have given it to you? Because it's the best. My brother gave me a, a gift years back, and it was this hammock, an Eno hammock. They're real hip and cool now. And, and to be honest, I didn't touch the thing for years. And later on, I found it in my closet. And uh, I thought, hey, I don't have a stand. I don't have two trees to hang up this really cool, this really cool hammock. And until one day, I was walking down the Charles River, and I noticed all these hipsters hanging on trees, you know, on these hammocks. And I thought, that's kind of cool. And, and I'm like, wait, I have one of those. Okay, cool. And I, I remember going and digging through my closet and finding the, the hammock. And, and, and I found out, wow, this is pretty incredible. And I started using the thing. And, and we, we bring it to parks. And we found a way to strap it underneath our back deck. And we use that thing as well. And, and I started to use it the way it was designed to be used. You didn't necessarily need to stand for it. You could, there, and I love the thing now. And, and I, listen, I pray that today it's kind of like a walk on the Charles River for you. I pray that today you, you see here in the scripture people enjoying this gift that has been given to you. And you see this old gift as, wow, that's, an amaz- that's actually really amazing. And I want to use it the way it was designed to be used. I want to pursue to figure out how to do this thing in a way that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. And I, I, I'm going to receive this great gift that God has given me that I've known about for some time now, but just maybe have neglected, haven't addressed, haven't talked about, haven't enjoyed rightly. And so I'm going to pray to that end. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you are so, so good a giver of gifts to us. And God, I, I pray for my friends in this room that they would eat, that they would drink, and they would be fulfilled, that they would be intoxicated. Receiving this great gift that you've given them. I pray for those who are hurting for various reasons, broken marriages, broken intimacy, abuse from the past that hasn't been dealt with, things that have been said to one another that that lead to bitterness in the bedroom. God, I pray that we would work through these things. And God, for those who are not married yet, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to wait, not because it's some awful, terrible thing that they shouldn't come close to, but because you have something amazing planned for them and you call them to wait so they can open up this incredible gift in time in due time. And so God, I, I pray that you would just be, be honored as we receive what you've given us. In all things, we turn back somehow to worship of you. And God, thank you for the example of Jesus who was selfless and served to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. so that we would serve selflessly and sacrificially. And God, I pray that if there's people in this room who have not trusted in Jesus and what he has done for them, turn from the sin of independence, turn to a life of trusting in you, pray that they would do that even today. Even after such a unique sermon. That you would draw us by your scriptures to yourself. And so we look to you for help. We look to you for healing. We look to you for hope. We'll be honored as we respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen.